Good evening, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be our first show that we're going to be broadcasting uh, for the semester. A couple things that I want to mention to you, and I'm going to kind of change our channel on the back here if I can get this thing to work right. Uh, I'm not sure which channel we're supposed to. There I am. Okay. Uh, need to do that so I can see myself talking, actually. Uh, what we want to do, this is the first show for Real Estate 310. Uh, today we had an orientation. We had two orientations. We had one that took went from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock in the morning. That was for our students that were here during the day. Uh, that was more convenient for them to, to attend that during the day. Then we had another one today from uh, 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock. When we did the orientation, what we did is we had we did an orientation for all three classes because we're doing uh, Real Estate 300, Real Estate 310, and Real Estate 320 all in the same venue. And so what we did is rather than having people come in, go to one class, and maybe they wanted to take another one instead of going home and coming back, we did it all at the same time. Uh, during that class, what we did is we talked about a lot of the technology that we use. We talked about Blackboard, uh, one of the systems that we utilize to deliver the content, in other words, your course outlines, your, uh, your uh, study guides, all that kind of stuff to keep you apprised of what's going on, like uh, postings of, hey, you know, the exams next week or whatever are all done on Blackboard, so we went over how to do that. Another thing that we mentioned during that particular class was the fact that uh, that we have uh, numbers of different ways that you can watch this show. One of the ways that you can watch it is like we're doing right now where students come in. We have some students in the room right now, really uh, uh, some of our stars here. I see they're on TV now. Uh, basically, no, no, water no, wa no water bottles. Oh, the water bottle cop called. Uh, yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, what happens is, is you can come in here when we have the broadcast, and we broadcast five, uh, four, what is it, 5.30 to 6.30, an hour, uh, Tuesday and Thursday. That's one way. The second way you can, as I talked about in the course outline or the syllabus, is that you can actually uh, be able to come to campus if you wanted to and check out the VHS tape. You have to sit there and watch it, but roughly about 15 minutes after the show is finished, Bob Bickley, who's our senior engineer, will make a re has a recording of it, takes it over to the library, which is right across the hallway, and it's available so you can watch it. The third way is, and I covered this during the, uh, during the orientation, was the fact that you could watch this over the Internet. So what essentially happens is when we finish this show, uh, it's being encoded or prepared to go on the Internet as I speak. When we are done, what will happen is in the next day or two, you'll be getting an email from me to say that this is available for you to watch over the Internet, which is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and I showed the class during the orientation how that works. Uh, another way is that we also, according to the course schedules, we rebroadcast this. So if you have Comcast or SureWest, what happens is, is that we rebroadcast the show the following weekend. So that means if you've been out of town or you want to TiVo it or you didn't have a chance, what can happen is you can watch it again. And that schedule's in the, in the course outline. I think I've covered pretty much all that. The other thing that I want to mention is for those students that might be in an outlying area, we have a campus in Davis, we have a campus in West Sacramento, and a campus downtown Sacramento. Again, I have those uh, addresses in the course outline. All I ask you to do is I have the name, address, phone number, and all that stuff, is that if you want to go there and watch the show, you can do that. That's fine. It's just that what you need to do is call them and let them know that you're going to be coming. Even if you're one person, they'll still accommodate you. It's just the fact that they need to know that you're coming. Otherwise, they won't have somebody there to make sure things are open. 
the last thing that I wanted to mention, if I've got everything covered, is the fact that I'm, we're also podcasting these. Now, what that essentially means is podcasting is something that got its name and people identify with the Apple iPod. You know, the, the, the little white thing you see people running around with little earbuds and dancing in the street and stuff like that. What we do is we take each show after we're done and we encode it, and we also put the audio up on the web. And you can download the audio and, and all the shows and just put them on the iPod and drive around and listen to it or work out or whatever you want to do. And the reason why I provided all those different methods is because you as students have asked for that. Uh, I can go back and say, uh, you know, there, there were students, I can remember really clearly two young ladies that said we spent a lot of time in the car driving around for our job. It would be really nice if we could just listen to the lectures. You know, so we accommodated that kind of thing. So that's available. And what will happen is when I put the show up there, the, the video will be up there, and plus the audio will be up there. And you'll be able to download it. And you, could, you don't have to have an iPod to do that, by the way. It's an MP3 player. And I know the younger, if you don't know how to do this, just go find your grandkids. They'll help you out here. They're really good at it. Um, what it is is that the files are taken and compressed into an MP3 format, and there are a lot of different types of MP3 players and a lot of people are just going around with their music and listening all the time to it. But iTunes kind of got the name because they were really good at getting things organized and providing the services for that. Okay, what I'm going to be doing today is I'm going to be going through and talking a little bit. Uh, I'm going to be moving something here in a minute um, just to make sure. I think I covered everything with the course outline, but I think I may do that again uh, I'm going to go ahead and see if I've got the uh, course outline here for, uh, uh, let me pull it up here for real estate. Uh, let me go to Blackboard for a minute and just bear with me, uh, courses. And I'm going to go ahead and uh, download the uh, 1234217. And I'm, what I'm doing is I'm actually going to Black, Blackboard and I'm pulling up the uh, course outline. And uh, I'm going to go to, this is real estate, I think, ITV, if I'm not mistaken, right? Okay, 300. So I'm going to go through here and look for 300 uh, ITV. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and download that course outline, which is located under course materials. And I'm going to right-click, and I'm going to go ahead and save it as, and I'm going to save it to the desktop. And I'm going to go ahead and open it up. And I think it's right here. So how easy that was to be able to download stuff and take a look at it. This is the course outline. I just want to mention a few things in here so that you're sort of familiar with it. This is the course outline that you were given at the course orientation, or maybe if you came in, you have. A couple things I want to point out. Now, we're doing this, we're doing this show in such a way that what we can do is that we're going to be reusing the material again. Okay, so you're going to find out that I'm not going to be saying things like it's hot today or cold today or, you know, what time of the year it is or whatever, and I'm going to try as hard as I can to stay away from dates because what we're doing is we're taking and making these uh, systems so that we can reuse them again. So that's why we're doing it. But anyway, this is Real Estate 300 Real Estate Principles. This just gives you my name. My office is located in the second story of the Sacramento City College uh, business building over here, which is just east of the Learning Resource Center. That gives you approximately my hours. My hours pretty much stay about the same, but just uh, that will give you an idea. That's my office phone here. Now, one thing I want to mention about my office phone, now that you know what it is, don't ever call me there. The reason why is because it's, in, in all seriousness, it's easier for you to send me an email. 
And the reason why it's easier for you to send me an email is because what happens is, is that you have your schedule. You wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I really, uh, I really need to, uh, I really need to, yeah, we're on air. Uh, we real, um, uh, I need to talk to Pat about something. I can't get a hold of him. I'm just thinking about it at 6 o'clock in the morning. You send me an email, and then what ends up happening is when I receive the email, which might be, you know, I may open my email at 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning, see it from you, and I'll answer back to you. So that way we're not kind of playing phone tag or anything. Plus, as I mentioned in the orientation, now today with a lot of the cell phones, when you're leaving messages, you know, a lot of people are driving down. I can hear them driving down the freeway at 50, 60, 70 miles an hour, and what happens is they're leaving a message, and I can't understand the darn thing they're saying. And because they don't have me on the other end saying, well, by the way, what did you say? I can't hear you. You're breaking up. And they think you guys think that I got a hold of you and you didn't. So just send me an email. I'll respond back to you. This gives you the name of the textbook, okay? And that's available in the bookstore for you to uh, purchase, okay? This gives you a description. Now, let me just ex explain a little bit on the course description, what that really is. And I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to kind of emphasize what it is. It says, this is a fundamental course in real estate covering the basic laws and the principles of California real estate, giving understanding and background to the terminology necessary for a more advanced study in specialized classes. Now, let me just say this. Whenever you are taking any new field or occupation, one of the largest chores that you really have is learning all the lingo. Okay, Like one of the gentlemen in here said that he puts in uh, TV systems and uh, and stereo systems. There's probably thousands of words and lingo that he knows that nobody else knows. Same thing like if you're a doctor or a lawyer, an accountant, whatever it happens to be, there are things that you know that somebody else doesn't know. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking about you know, things like what is a legal description? What is a grand deed? What is a quick claim deed? What is a deed of trust? What is a note? What kinds of appraisals they are? We're going to talk about those things so you're familiar. Because when you take a look at these chapters that are in, and Bob, you can come back to me if you're there. When you, when, you, when you take and look at these chapters, there can be just one or maybe sometimes more courses just on each individual chapter. Okay? So, for example, in real estate appraisal, we have two in-depth courses on real estate appraisal, just real estate appraisal only. There's a separate course on real estate finance. There are courses on escrow, title. You know, there's you know, in-depth courses. So what it is is that we're just kind of touching a little bit of everything as we go through this to get you familiar with the terms, terminology, and stuff like that. Going back to this, I just want to mention a couple more things, and that is is that what kinds of things should you basically be doing when you take the course? And I kind of give you a little bit of a checklist in here. First of all, as I mentioned before, you attend the mandatory orientation that we had today. We had two of them. Okay, some of you maybe missed it, so we'll go over that after class. The next thing is is that you're going to want to watch the TV show to see what we're doing on the, on the TV show and watch every one of those. Uh, you're going to want to read the materials in the book and prepare for it. And one of the things that I mentioned during the orientation is I have a study guide up on the website. And the study guide is 99.999% the same as the exam. Essentially, it is the exam. But what I want you to do is be able to download that, look up all the answers, spend the time with the idea in mind that, hey, you know, I could get 100 on this thing so that when you walk in to come and take the exam, you're prepared. And the reason why I'm doing that for you is that that's the same way you would want to prepare for a state exam. You want to take an exam, take some sample exams, and go, you know what? I got that right, but that was a guess. I really didn't know what it was. I'm going to be honest with myself. And then go back and read that portion of the material and say, you know, because we all come to real estate, 
And there's certain things that we know really well, and there's things we don't. For example, we may come to real estate and we have a background in finance, and we had no problem with the finance, but we go to do a legal description, we're completely confused. Or we have worked for a title insurance company, we understand a legal description, but we're really confused when it comes to something like appraisal. So we all come with things that we know, and there's things that we don't know. Okay. Um, a couple other things I want to mention here that I think uh, you are going to need to have a Scantron 882, as I mentioned during the course orientation. Uh, and it's in here. They sell them in the bookstore. You'll need to have about three of those for the exam. When you come for the exam, you'll re have a number two pencil. And let me see what else in here that I wanted to kind of emphasize before I got into a couple other things. Um, this is the scores. Uh, essentially what this is is that there are three exams. There's a first midterm that will cover the first cha five chapters we discuss. There's a second midterm that covers the next five chapters. And then there is a final that covers the last five chapters. You're also going to be doing something called a real estate professional interview. This is a very simple thing. I've never had anybody that has not really done it. What it is is that during the semester, uh, and I have the guidelines on the Blackboard website as I showed you today, what you're going to do is you're going to go out and find somebody that's in the area of real estate that you would like to work in. If it's an agent, a broker, an appraiser, whatever it happens to be, and visit with them. Make an appointment, sit down, and say, listen, I'm interested in becoming an agent. I'm interested in becoming an appraiser. Could you help me out here? I'm a student. I'm trying to make sure that I have my kind of my career. I'm taking the right courses and stuff like that. Tell me what you do on a day-to-day -day activity. What's the field really like? What kind of skills do you see that people really need? You know, what are the challenges both now and in the future? You want to know that. Then when you get all done, you're going to write a two-page report that you'll turn in. Okay, and you turn that in when you come in to take the second midterm exam. Okay. Uh, this tells you right here what the point score is for an A, B, C, D, and F. Okay. Down below here is a schedule, and it shows you the dates. Don't Please don't, again, if you're watching this, and maybe you're watching it in the spring or the summertime because we're recording it for future use, uh, the idea is that I'll have a schedule that I have the dates and I have the chapters that we're going to talk about, okay, and the exam dates, All right? So I think that that's basically, as far as the course outline goes, without me kind of beating it to death, uh, Everything is in here, dates, times, when we meet, everything else. So I'm going to kind of close out of here. And what I want to do is go back, and I want to talk about the individual chapters. And so I'm going to be back and forth between this plasma screen and me talking. So I'll just bring the title up and say I'm going to talk about this and then come back on camera again. But what we want to do is we want to talk a little bit about the content of the course so you're a little bit familiar with what we're going to be discussing. So what I'm going to do is go to the first thing, which is going to be what we're going to cover in Chapter 1, which is an introduction to real estate. Uh, the reason why we're going to be doing this is that we want to have you be aware of what real estate really is. Uh, first of all, historically, how California became a state. Uh, that the fact that you need to be aware of the fact that in some cases you're going to run into things like Spanish land grants, Mexican land grants, U.S. land patents, to understand that you know, land has had you know had come when we became a state had come and had been owned by a lot of different or, uh, a lot of different countries, and so you'll hear those terms. Okay, we'll be going through that. The other thing that we want to do in this particular case is to talk about what real estate really is, and the reason why this is important is because we need to distinguish between real property and personal property. If I'm getting ready to list a house for sale, one of the things that I want to do when I visit with that client is to find out. 
For example, I will go through the home with him on a tour, and I'll say, oh, by the way, do the drapes stay? And the reason why is because drapes could possibly be considered to be personal property and not real property. I may look at a refrigerator and say, is that going to stay or are you going to take it with you? Because there are certain refrigerators that are built in and they're part of the real estate, and there are some ones that are, that are personal property and you take it with you. The point is we want to be able to distinguish between real and personal property, and there are certain rules and laws that we need to be aware of. We need to look at things like how is it attached to the property? Is it bolted down, cemented down? Uh, how is it attached? Is it easily removable? Is the property that we're talking about in a, in, in a residence or is the property in a business? For example, in a residence, a lot of the property may be considered to be real property, whereas if you go into a business like a video store or an ice cream parlor or a restaurant, you're going to find out all that furniture and all that fixturing and all those shelves are not real property. They're personal property. What it was is that when the business owner leased the space originally, he got the permission from the owner of the property to put the shelves up, put the fryers in, put the stoves in, or whatever. In fact, he may have even found out that when he gets ready to move out, he has to put the property in the same condition it was when he originally got it. Uh, so anyway, we want to talk about that. We're also going to be talking about something called dis legal descriptions. Most of you are aware of the fact that when we talk about a property's location, that we say the address is 2795 Wentworth Road or 123 Main Street or uh, uh, 3514 Patterson Way. All that does is gives us a postal address. It doesn't distinguish or doesn't describe the property. It doesn't tell us how wide it is, how deep it is. It doesn't tell us anything about that. So when you really think about it, we just have to have some way of legally describing, saying, you own lot 25 of this subdivision, or you own, in uh, another kind of description we have is something called the meets and bounds, which is an older description where you actually create, it's kind of like a pathway and explain to somebody where all the boundaries are of the real property, or you have a government survey. And those things are important because of the fact when you're a real estate agent or in the real estate business, you're going to be looking at those reports and standing there with the client and talking about things like, hey, are there easements or their rights of way? What's against the property? Okay, and you need to be able to know what that is. So we'll be talking about that kind of stuff and how that system functions. The next thing that we're going to be doing is something called the states, transfers, and titles. And those are three different words. Estates means what is it that you own? You are commonly used to the fact that when you buy a house, your house that you live in, that you hold the fee estate. That means that you can buy it, you can die and leave it to somebody else, you can borrow against it, you can sell it to somebody. That's your estate. Okay, there are other kinds of estates, though. For example, there are estates called life estates, which means that you, have, you may die and decide to leave a piece of property to your son, and he's going to be able to live in it, enjoy it, and use it and everything else while he's alive, and then when he die, when he's gone, it's going to go to somebody else. That's a life estate. Okay. You also have something called a leasehold estate. You know, when we think of leases or rental agreements, we usually think about an apartment pl place for a month to month or maybe for a year. But there are buildings and places where, like the state of California or Home Depot or Lowe's or anybody goes out and gets a lease on a piece of property or on a building for like 25 years. That means during those 25 years, that that's property that they can use and depending upon the agreement, enjoy and borrow against or whatever. 
So we'll talk about those different types of things. That's what a, an estate is. Transfers has to do with what, how you transfer from one person to another. If we take a look at how we do it with a car, we know that in a car, at least in California, we have something called a pink slip. We know that as long as we own the car free and clear, that if we get decided to sell it, we sell it to the person, we give them a bill of sale, they give us money, we sign the pink slip, turn it to them, they go down to the Department of Motor Vehicles and they transfer the title from you to them. That's how we do it with the car. In real estate, we have a different method of doing it. What we do is when we're going to transfer property from one person to another, typically in the sale of property, we use something called the grant deed, or we call it a deed. It's called the grant deed. In other words, I'm granting you the, my property, or I'm selling it or giving it to you. But there are other kinds of deeds besides that. There are deeds called quick claim deeds, which essentially are you're just saying, when somebody signs that, they're just saying, listen, I don't know what it is that maybe I own, but I'm going to give it up. Okay, you typically see that like in a marriage and a divorce situation where somebody maybe has gone out and bought property before they, the divorce has been final and we're in a community property state and what ends up happening is, is that the husband or wife decides to buy a property before the, the divorce is final. They have to get their other partner to sign a quick claim deed to say, I don't have any interest in it. Okay, there's also sheriff's deeds, trustee deeds, all those kinds of properties. So we'll talk about that. Also, titles. Title has to do with how, you, how your name is presented on the deed. Are you, uh, if you're a husband and wife, is it uh, Pat Hogarty and Mary Hogarty as joint tenants, which means if one or the other dies, it automatically goes to the surviving spouse? Is it community property? Is it separate property? Is it tenants in common? How is it held? So we'll talk about that. Okay, that's title. Okay, and you're probably familiar with that with how you hold title on your cars, maybe. Next thing, we're going to move to something called Chapter 6. So we're kind of jumping a little bit ahead. This is landlord and tenant. And some people go, why would you go to chapter, you know, jump a couple chapters ahead and then come back? The reason why is because at this point in time, what most people's experience when they first get involved with real estate is in renting property. You're renting an apartment. You are familiar with the fact that, hey, I went down there, I looked at a bunch of apartments, I put a down payment down. I had to sign a thing called a rental agreement or a release agreement. At least I acknowledged that I did something like that. I had to pay a deposit. I had an inspection. I had to walk through. I understand that, you know, if, if I wanted to do something, I had to get the landlord's permission. I just couldn't paint the apartment pink if I wanted to. Uh, you know, understanding how that all works is important. And also tenants or landlord-tenant is not just single-family homes and condominiums and townhouses. It's things like shopping centers, office buildings, Things like that. Those are all leaks. So we'll be talking about that stuff. Okay. The next thing is, is encumbrances. Encumbrances means the fact that I have a piece of property and something is pre preventing me from doing something with it. As an example, when property, when we first started even looking at real property, and we owned real property, we had something called fee simple absolute, which essentially meant that we owned that property from the very center of the earth, conceptually, to outer space. That was our property. Nobody else owned it. We owned it. But over the years, things have happened that, mean, that, that encumber or prevent us from doing things with the property. And those encumbrances fall into two categories. One is a physical encumbrance, and the other is a monetary encumbrance. A physical encumbrance would be, for example, if you drive through any subdivision in Sacramento area and you look on the side and pay very close attention, you'll see usually a lot of times these little green boxes. They may be transformers. 
It may be cable TV boxes. They may be telephone boxes. Those are easements. They're utility easements. What it is is that the utility company has said to you, listen, do you want phone service? And you say, yes, well, we need to put a box here. Do you want power to your house so you can operate your lights? Well, yeah, we need to put a transformer here. Uh, the gas company may come down and say, would you like to have gas to your house? Well, we need to put a gas pipe down there. What that means is that they have an easement. They have a right to that area of the property, which means if that transformer is there, you can't just go out and dig it up and move it over to the side and put your roses there. You know, that's actually legally something that's identified on the property, and it's part of the title to the property. So those are those are encumbrances that are physical in nature, okay? Uh, the other kind that we would basically have is things like rights of way. You know, we talked about encumbrance, but rights of way would be where somebody had the right to go over my property to gain access to their property in the back. You don't see this as much in subdivisions as you do in the outlying areas where you find out that, you know, old grandpa has got where Joe that lives behind him is driving down his driveway to get to his property in the back because it's landlocked. Okay, that's what we're talking about, a right of way. Okay, that's, but that's physical, physical stuff. You also have monetary, money things. As an example, when you get ready to buy a piece of property, most of us do not have three, four, five hundred thousand dollars in our back pocket. So what we typically do is we go down to the bank and borrow the money. The bank says, okay, we'll lend you the money, but what we want to do is we want to have we want to have something to make sure that that property is secure. We want to kind of have the right that if you don't make the payments, we can sell it and get our money back. Remember, when you buy a car, that's what the car companies do, the banks do. They hold the pink slip. You know, they hold the pink slip until you pay it off, then they give you the pink slip. If you don't pay, you make your payments, they call the repo man. Okay, repo gal. On, on real estate, what they do is you execute something called a deed of trust. And a deed of trust actually gives the authority to a third party called the trustee that in the event that you don't make the payments, then the lender can call the trustee and say, hey, Pat hasn't been making his payments, start foreclosure. And then they'll go through the foreclosure process and actually sell the place at a public auction and, and get the money for the bank to be able to pay off the loan. So that's a physical, it's a monetary encumbrance. Some of the other monetary types of encumbrances would be things like mechanics liens. If you go out and contract with a mechanic, and a mechanic can fall under the fact of somebody like a plumber, electrician, a carpenter, uh, a TV installation guy, it can a roofer, it can be somebody that's providing materials like, uh, for example, like Home Depot, whatever. Okay, all those people have, are, have an expectation of getting paid. If you have a new roof put on the house or your stereo system is not right and you get angry with the guy and say, I'm not going to make payments to you, forget about it. And you say, well, wait a minute. No, it works right. You don't understand. Well, I didn't you know, get into an argument. They say, I'm not going to pay. What the mechanic has the right to do is to go and file a lien against that property saying, I want to get paid. And if you don't get paid, I want you know the property's going to end up selling. What that does is it clouds the title. In other words, you're not going to get a lender that's going to lend you money while this mechanics lien exists. So you're going to, it's kind of going to force you to pay that thing off if you want to refinance or sell. Okay? Same thing with materials. Same thing. It's going to be a monetary type of encumbrance or prevent you from doing something. So we'll talk about that. The next thing is going to be we're going to go to uh, jump all the way ahead in chapters, and that's licensing, education, and associations. And the reason why we want to do this is because of the fact that at this point, most people are saying, well, what is it? I want to get really cleared up on what is it that I need to do to get a license. 
Okay, notice we have three categories. We have licensing, which we're going to talk about getting a real estate license. We have education, which is what kinds of education there are. And we have something called associations. Now, under licensing, what's important is that you understand what the requirements are for you to obtain a real estate license. Just as a brief overview, if you are want to be a salesperson, meaning you're going to work for a broker. Now, as a salesperson, you cannot go out there and pass your exam and put a sign outside and say, I sell real estate. All salespeople have to work for a real estate broker, have to by law. They can't. In fact, yeah. In fact, if you, if you go out and you, and you get a license, which you can do, you can pass it, you can get a license, you, you, but you can't practice until you're underneath the control of a broker. And the reason why is they, you know, the, the way the law is written, they want to make sure that you know what you're doing. Because what you're taking in a lot of these classes, a lot of this stuff that we're talking about is academic stuff. You also need to have somebody to guide you along practically on what to do. And it would be kind of like the way I, because I fly airplanes, it would be kind of like saying to somebody, listen, I'm going to sit down and teach you how, how an airplane flies. And at the end of the class, I'm not going to give you any instruction. I'm just going to give you the keys. Go fly it. You go, no, wait a minute. There's something wrong here. You know, you need to have the academic part of it that you understand how, you know, like how the airplane flies or how a deed of trust works, but you also need to have that instructor sitting on the right seat that says, wait a minute, let's go out and do a listing and let me walk you through how this works, okay? If you get your license and apply, you can apply to take your exam license while you're taking this class, okay? If you have confidence in the fact that you feel that you'd be able to pass the exam after this class, it's fine. You can schedule it, and I'll show you where it is and how you do it and how you go about doing it when we get to that chapter. But the thing is, is that once you pay, and you can do it while you're, you just have to fill out this thing and pay your fee and then go ahead and take the test and, you know, and, but you can't do anything. You can't actually even get the license until you finish this class. Okay? Then you can apply for it. Now, when you, uh, under the way California is structured right now, is that once you finish this class, you can get what's commonly referred to as a probationary license. That license is good for 18 months. At the end of 18 months, if you haven't taken two additional courses, which I'll tell you what they are in a minute, your license vaporizes. It goes away. You have to start the whole process again. The two additional courses you have to take is real estate practice. That's mandatory. You have to take that. You have no choice in that. And the other one that you have to take is, and there's one of a selection of eight, there's uh, real estate finance, real estate economics, uh, appraisal, real estate law, escrow title, and then a new class, for example, that we have in the spring called computer applications in real estate that we have. That's one of the classes you can take. You have to have the principal's practice in one of those classes finished before your license becomes permanent and lasts for four years. Okay? Uh, and we'll talk about what the requirements are. If you have, for example, if you already have a bachelor's degree in any subject, could be anything, then you can get waived at two-year experience requirements. Okay? But the way it works is for a salesperson to become a broker, they have to have two years of sales experience. If they have no additional, you know, academic education, you know, with a degree, if they have one year of sales experience and one year and a two-year college degree, then that'll that, that'll satisfy it. Or if they have a bachelor's degree, that'll so satisfy the experience requirement. That's become a real estate broker. So we'll talk about that. Education, what we want to do there is distinguish between the two types of education. There's education like you're taking now, which is real estate principles, practice, all that kind of stuff. Then there's another kind of education called continuing education. All professions, I think almost all professions nowadays, lawyers, doctors, accountants, nurses, whatever, every time you renew your license, you have to provide for them something proof that you have, you have completed so many hours of study to keep up in the profession. 
currently right now in the real estate business is about 45 hours. In fact, 45 hours. When you get ready to, to renew your license, you have to submit that proof that you've taken those. That happens to be classes that can be on lots of different topical areas. The Sacramento Association of Realtors, which is local here, you know, is our association, has a really, really uh, great educational program over there that provides a lot of those classes that are fairly inexpensive. And what you really want to do is take those as the time goes by so you're not taking something that you really don't want to take in the end. You want to take the classes that, you know, are interesting. And they're provided usually either through the association or through a third-party vendor. The last thing is called associations, and that is is that all or most professions have, you know, again, doctors, lawyers, accountants all have. We can all pick out where they have, per, they have an association. If you're a real estate agent, it's the, it's, it's, it, you're, it's the real estate association. Locally here, if you're in Sacramento, it's the Sacramento Association of Realtors, which is located on 2003 Howe Avenue. If you're in El Dorado County, it's the El Dorado County Association of Realtors. If you're in Placer County, it's Placer County Association of Realtors, so on and so forth. What they basically do is they use people that, you know, like the association, the Sacramento Association, I think has about 7,000 some odd members. They have regular meetings. They also have the multiple listing service. They go on home tours. You know, also associations not only provide education, but they also do things like represent your interest in front of the, uh, in front of Congress. Every time they go in and try to take away the home interest deduction, guess who's in there fighting for that? It's usually the, the uh, Building Industry Association and the, Cal- and, the, uh, and the Real Estate Association who's fighting for that. And then we'll talk about the different levels. There's the Sacramento Association. There's the California Association, and each state has an association. So there's like a New York Association and a Hawaii Association. And then there's a National Association. And then there are derivatives of those associations that will maybe specialize in something like industrial property. Uh, there's also things that are unique to ethnic backgrounds, like the, there's a Hispanic association, Chinese association. Uh, there's just a lot that are trying to service that particular community and, and represent them and help them buy houses. So there's a lot of those. So we'll talk about those. Okay, agency and responsibilities. What's important about this when we get to this is the fact that when you are a real estate agent, you are hired by the client to represent them in things like negotiations, showing the house, doing all that kind of stuff. You actually create a legal agency relationship with them. For example, when I go out and list a piece of property for sale and sign that listing agreement, I'm creating an agency relationship where I, the seller and I are agreeing that I'm going to represent their interests. I hold their interests higher than anybody else, including myself, uh, that I'm going to be honest and trustworthy in, 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 in my dealings with them. I'll always hold their interests ahead of everybody else's interest and make sure that we do the proper disclosures. In other words, we're covering all of the different uh, things that have to deal with agencies. So uh, it's very, very important. And you can have a buyer's agency where you're just representing the buyer. You can have an agency where you just represent the seller. Or you can have an agency relationship where you represent both the buyer and the seller. Okay, And that means both in the listing of homes for sale or buildings or real estate or whatever, the leasing of it, the purchase of it, the negotiations of it or whatever. Okay, so we'll talk um, more about that as uh, time goes by. The next thing is going to be contracts. Contracts become, um, 
Very, very important. One of the things that you may not realize when you get into the real estate business that you're also getting into the contract creation business. When you do anything in real estate, it's in writing. So, for example, even if you start out in the beginning, when you go out and you talk to several different real estate brokers and you decide that you have found somebody that you want to work for, you're going to sign a legal contract with them that's going to discuss things like you know, uh, what, how you should conduct your business, when you're going to have floor time, what you should be doing with your listings, how you should service your listings, uh, all kinds of things. Your commission splits, how your commissions are going to split, what expenses you're going to be responsible for with the broker. Is the broker going to pay for your advertising? Are you going to pay? All that's covered in that. Same thing when you get ready to do a listing on a house. You go out and sign this listing. You're going to be putting down on that legal contract that you're creating, and it's very important. I mean, while you think that we're only covering a lot of stuff when we cover those contracts, believe me, you get finished and you work for a real estate broker, you're probably going to spend four or eight hours just on the listing agreement, covering all the laws that are involved. But you're going to be dealing with what the price house is going to sell for, how long it's going to be on the market, you know, what's going to go be sold with the house? You know, what, you know, is the washer going to go? The dryer going to go? Is it going to stay or is it not going to stay? What kind of conditions? What kind of disclosures? Like, is there any problems with the house at all? Does it have a leaky roof? Does it have termites? You know, all those disclosures, all that's going to be in the contract, okay? Same thing when you do the other side of that, which is a purchase offer. It's called, uh, you know, where you offer to buy a house. You're going to know how to have to know how to fill that out. Same thing with lease agreements, rental agreements, on and on. So you're always in the contract business, but understanding like who can I enter in, who can enter into a contract? You know, somebody walks in and they don't look like they're 18 years old. Can they can they enter into a real estate deal? You know, if I go out to list a house for sale and I say hi and I'm talking to some uh, some husband, some guy, and he's sitting there and I look at the thing and he says, I say, well, you know, you're you and your wife, there's two of you on title here, right? And he says, yeah. And I said, is your wife going to be home soon? And he says, well, she's she's kind of like put away for a while. She's in jail, okay? Sir, I'm just telling you the truth. What you have to do is you just can't go to the jail and say, excuse me, you know, could you sign this listing agreement? There are certain things that you have to do to through the judicial system to find out and make sure that that's okay. Um if you get out there, for example, and you're sitting at the table and, and, again, where you expect to see two people and you find out that maybe one of them is not there and the reason why is because they're dead, you know, and they never retitled the property correctly, you're going to have to know how to handle that. You know, you just can't go out and dig them up out of the ground and bring them out and have them sign. You know, there's certain things you have to do. So understanding how all the contractual things work, what kinds of things you have to offer, like a contract's not a contract unless you have consideration, which is either money or, or notes or, or something you've put up or something you've agreed to do or not do. So those things are important. Okay, And also how to deal with uh, people that may possibly be impaired, mentally impaired. You know, if they sign a contract and you get all done and they seem to be okay and then they say, did you just see that Martian? You know, I mean... Unless they're my cousin Lynn or somebody like that, you know, you maybe need to say, is there, you know, are you okay, you know? <laughs> you know, you, you need to know about that because if they sign something and then later on they're just not, don't have the mental faculties to be able to enter into the agreement, it can become null and void. So you need to know that. We'll talk about that. Escrow and title is the next thing. When you really think about it and you buy a house or you buy anything, you're talking about a lot of money. 
One thing you don't want to do is walk in, the house is for sale on the weekend. You see the house, and the guy says, hey, this is a really good deal. You know, normally you could buy for it's for sale for four hundred, but for today two hundred thousand dollars. Write me a check today for two hundred thousand dollars and your house. Good chance he may disappear. In fact, there have been times when that has happened. Believe it or not, many many times. So the concept of escrow, and California uses escrow officers. Other states, you'll hear them talk about going down to the attorney's office to do the settlement or do the signing. New York is like that. They'll talk about we went to the attorney's office to sign. But an escrow office is where that person, when you get ready to open, you know, you get an accepted offer from a client, you call an escrow company, you give them a copy of the contract that you sign, which is that thing called a uh, purchase offer, accepted offer, deposit receipt. You give them the check that you received, and then their responsibility is to not give anybody any money, not transfer any title, until all of those conditions that are in that contract are met. That means things like termite inspections, appraisals, Monies that come in, things have been paid off, things are fixed, all that. When all that stuff is done in those contract things, unless you have given, both parties have given direction to the escrow officer to change something, unless that's been done, then until all that stuff's been done, the house can't be sold. Okay? The other thing that we're, we're going to have in here besides escrow is title. Title insurance means that what we want to do is we want to take a look at the fact, uh, does this person really own this property? And what that means is that when we go to that title company, part of the function that they're going to do is they're going to open up a title search. They're going to search the records. They're going to look to see when the current owner came into title. Are there any mechanics liens? Are there any encumbrances? Are there any judgments, tax liens, anything that would prevent that property from being transferred? And they're going to provide something called a report, called the preliminary report that the buyer and the seller, especially the buyer, is going to look at before they're going to purchase the property. Because you don't want to buy the property only to find out, oh, I took the property over, but there's a lien by the IRS, and the IRS is going to get their money. Or, oh, by the way, that guy borrowed some money and never paid it off, and you're going to have to pay it off. So you want to know what that is. And the title insurance does that and then provides policy of title insurance to guarantee it. So we'll talk about that. Next thing is real estate finance which is probably one of the biggest topics in the area, as we all know. Uh, two years ago, three years ago, we would read in the paper about people standing in line, camping out at model homes on the weekend to have the opportunity to put their name in a hat to possibly be drawn to buy a house. There was such a demand. The interest rates were extremely low. Uh, that meant a lot of people could afford to buy. And what ended up happening is that pushed the value of the real estate up. What happened is is that the Federal Reserve, which we'll talk about the Federal Reserve, one of their jobs is to make sure that's where we hear about, you know, um, uh, Alan Greenspan, who's the past Fed chairman, or Bernanke, who's the current one. They meet together and decide to raise the interest rates to try to quell in, uh, inflation. Uh, what happens is, is they've raised the interest rates. I think it's either 13, 14, or 15 times in a row. I can never keep track of what it is. What's ended up happening is that those people that could afford payments at 4% on a $300,000 house, now that same house that the person that's selling it wants $300,000 for, the, pay, the interest rates are, say, 6 or 7 So what ends up happening is those people that normally could have afforded it in the past can't afford it anymore. So the house sits on the market for a long period of time. The people still need to sell it, and guess what they have to do eventually? They have to start doing something called drop their price. So that's why you're starting to see people are dropping their price. You see price reduction on the signs. You hear about people going into foreclosure. That's because of the fact of finance. 
Finance is very important, so we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the different finance programs. Very, very, very important, very critical part of the business. Uh, financial institutions, we also want to make sure that we understand what the different types of financial institutions are that we work with. We have banks, we have savings and loans, we have uh, mortgage bankers, mortgage brokers. Uh, we have people that are what we call the secondary market. We have Fannie Mae, Ginnie Mae, Freddie Mac. The easiest way I like to explain that is the fact that if you're in a small, teensy-weensy, itsy-bitsy little town, and what brings to my mind is Georgetown, which is up in the hills like maybe 20, 30 years ago. I think I could remember one bank in that town at the time, which was Wells Fargo. If you took a look at that and they weren't dealing with anybody else, the, the funds that were coming into that bank were coming from all the people that lived in that community. Now, now those people are coming in, they're depositing $1,000, $2,000, $3,000, whatever. Okay, that's what they're depositing. But when they get ready to borrow money, who are they borrowing it from the bank? Well, the bank can't lend this guy $300,000 because the depositors aren't paying enough. Well, what banks do, or lenders do, is they actually go out and they essentially make the loans, package the loans, get a certain level of the loans, like a million dollars worth of loans, for example, and they sell it, and they sell it on the secondary market, and that's typically called Fannie Mae. Fannie Mae buys those loans, remits the money back to the lender, which hopefully makes them some profit, and they repeat the process over again. Fannie Mae also does things like establishes guidelines, like what are the credit scores that are required, what kinds of loans should we do, things like that. It standardizes something. Also, they, provide, they mitigate or help the risk. If you think about that small little town, if we have a big fire that goes through and burns down everything, all the people that live in that community that deposit in that bank are gone or can't work right now. So you think about it, that bank would be out of business, all those loans would go into foreclosure, and there's no way to spread that risk. But when we sell it to Fannie Mae, pieces of those loans are sold throughout all over the place. That, so the risk is, is spread amongst many people instead of concentrated into one area. So they provide liquidity for those mortgages. And who buys those mortgages? Pension funds like CalPERS, CalSTRS, you know, pension profit-sharing plans buy them to invest money in insurance companies. Okay, uh, next thing is appraisal. We'll talk about appraisal. Appraisal is a very, very important topic. Uh, the amount of money that's lent on a piece of property is based on the appraised value of the property. The appraised value of the property is not a science. It is not a science. It is an art. It's based on the fact of somebody that has got a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge after looking at lots and lots of properties and lots and lots of data rendering a professional opinion as to what they believe the value of the property is. Okay, So we are really heavily depending upon these people to do their job correctly because the lender is not running out looking at the property to make a decision on, is it worth $300,000? What is it worth? They're not. Okay, They're depending upon the appraiser. And there's three basic types of appraisals that we'll talk about. One of them happens to be a market approach, a market approach you do every day. When you go out to buy anything, a quarter milk, a loaf of bread, a new car, a new stereo, whatever you're going to do, you shop. After a while, you start to build a feeling for what something is worth. Okay? And in a market approach, what it is is that you happen to be talking about a home or a property that's in an area that has lots of homes and properties that are similar in nature, that have had sales that are fairly recent, and what you do is you go out and look at those properties. You see what they, how they are, what kinds of characteristics they have. Are they big, small, 
pools, no pools, whatever, and you look at that in relation to the property you're going to appraise. You make adjustments for those, and then you render an opinion of whether you feel the property that you're appraising is what it's worth based on that, and you document all those things. The other way, two ways, is cost approach. That's where you're dealing with something that doesn't necessarily have a, uh, a lot of sales of activity in the area. Maybe it does land but not buildings. It's very difficult to come up with a value, and what you do is you say, you know what, the only way I can come up with some kind of a value is to figure out what it would cost to build this building, you know, brand new, and then take away how many years it's depreciated and come up with a value. And you may do an appraisal not only, you may do an appraisal not just for the sale of property, it might be for things such as uh, uh, <clears throat> maybe it burned down, you're doing it because there was a fire, okay, or a storm. Or you may be doing it because there's a marriage dissolution, you're trying to establish a value for an attorney that's trying to figure out what the value of the house is. That's an appraisal. Uh, but anyway, cost. The last one is income. Income is where you don't necessarily care what the building, what some fool paid for something. You don't care what it costs to build. You're concerned with how much money you're going to earn on it. So you're looking at things like, I want to look at cash flow. In other words, how much cash is coming off this building on a monthly basis? Okay? And how much is going to service the debt? How much is going for maintenance? Whatever. And you're going to pay based on taking that flow of money coming out and capitalizing it, coming up and saying, okay, so much per month, which is so much per year, the building is worth this. Where do we use those things? Things like apartment houses, shopping centers, office buildings, mini warehouses, those all use the income approach. You may do an appraisal on a property and come up with three different values. You as a professional appraiser are the one that comes up and says, it's my professional opinion that the best indicator of value of this property is this. Tell why. Okay, that's an appraisal. I already talked about the appraisal methods, which was cost, market, and income approach. Okay, so we'll talk a little bit more in depth about those. Subdivisions and government control. Uh, very, very important. Most of us, most of everybody do not realize that the day that we see a brand new home subdivision going in, that the builder didn't wake up two months ago and decide to build that subdivision. That wasn't done two months ago. There's a long process that they go through. So we'll talk about that. What it is is that you have somebody that owns some property, and they either are going to sell it or somebody wants to acquire it, but they're going to take something like 50 acres or some sort of size of property. And what they're going to do is they, their intention is to take that property, cut it up, put streets, curbs, gutters, lots in, and then sell it to somebody that's going to build houses or build the houses themselves. Well, in order to do that, they have to do things like hire a licensed engineer to go out and survey the property and figure out how to do it. Then they have to draw a map out that legally describes where that property is located. It has to go before the county, if it's in the county, or the city, if it's in the city, and get an approval of the, of the departments. And then once it's approved, which maybe it may not be approved right away, it may have to go through several revisions, then it's finally recorded. That can take months or years to do, okay? So we talk about that, and the, and the laws that cover that is something called the Subdivision Map Act. Map because you're creating a map. There's also a Subdivided Lands Act, which creates something called the public report that comes out of the Department of Real Estate. What that is is that you're giving that to everybody that buys a brand-new condominium, townhouse, or home in an area in which nobody's ever lived in. 
That'll cover things like what the homeowners association is like, where the fire department is, and it's a public disclosure of all the conditions affecting the property. And if you're buying a new house, you have to sign that you've read that thing. They don't give you an exam against it, but you have to sign that you've read it. Okay, so we'll talk about how that process goes, zoning, what zoning is. Uh, talk a little bit about how you find that information out. Uh, that's very, very important that you know how to go go down to the county or the city and find out what is it zoned for, what can I do. And probably I'll throw a few more cautions in there because of the fact that you just don't want to take, you know, if somebody says it's zoned for commercial, you may want to find out a lot more information than just about that. There might be a lot of things tied to that. Okay, next thing is going to be taxation of real estate. <clears throat> Anytime that you uh, buy or sell real estate, there's a, you always trigger a tax event. An event means something that happens that triggers something to happen, you know. In other words, when I sell, that's an event. Now, I may have to pay income tax on it, and I may not, depending upon the law. Uh, if you're talking about residential versus income property, there's two basic things. If it's residential property and you have lived in the property, then there's a certain set of laws that apply. So, for example, if you have lived in the property for two years or more, it's your property. If you are single, then you can exclude up to $250,000 of the gain. Okay. Now, remember, gain, you have to calculate all that. Okay. Did you have a question? Go ahead. Uh, you got to press the button. Uh, show her to press the button. Okay. Yeah, press the button and ask the question. Okay. Um, can you tell me if you have a residence that you may be living in part-time and another family member of yours has been living in? Um, is that still considered your residence even if you've been living somewhere else and you're not generating any income from that property, from that resident that's your Okay, that's, that's a case Parent. that I probably have to talk to you on, offline. Usually what they're looking for is, is your name on the title. Mm -hmm. Okay, have you actually lived there? Have you been ways to prove that you've owned the money? Yeah. yeah. But you, let me tell you with income taxes, one thing you have to do is do not ever under any circumstance take what anybody else says as law and follow it. Every person's situation is different. We could all have the same property in the same area, live in it for the same amount of time, but the difference tax consequence has to do with are we single or married? Uh, you know, what is our current income tax situation? Do we, you know, how much money do we earn? We have to, that's why to this day I have an accountant. When I get ready to do something, I sit down with the accountant and I say, this is the situation. He's got all my paperwork, and I say, what are the consequences of me making this decision? Okay, very, very important you do that. And do that before you do the thing. Don't do it after so you have tears running down your eyes. Because there's people that end up with a huge tax bill and didn't even know they had to do it. Now, that's if you're single. If you're married, it's $500,000, okay? But that's if you live in it and there's certain conditions that you have to meet, okay? If it's an investment piece of property, it's a totally set of different laws, okay? And we'll talk about what that is. But it's important that you're aware of that as not only as a property owner and real estate agent, but that you are at least aware. You're not giving tax advice, but you need to be aware that that event comes up. Okay, and then the last thing that we're going to talk about is something called real estate math. Now, we do not do calculus, trigonometry, geometry, and all that other stuff. We're talking about addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. What we are talking about is, is that like any counting, accounting situation, the math is not the hard part. We can all do that. We can all run a calculator. The problem is figuring out what the problem is. Okay, it's taking and listening to what the people are saying like that young lady was saying, and turning around and writing it down and trying to figure out what the facts are and then calculating what needs to be done. 
So what happens is with real estate math, the problem is not doing the math. It's figuring out what the problem is. Somebody tells you something and they say, my monthly payments are this and my yearly payments are this, and we have to get them down, and so we're comparing apples to apples. You know, we have to be able to do that. I will tell you that if you're a real estate agent, you typically go out for a listing agreement, you go out to list the property, you're not going to be more there than 10 or 15 minutes, and the people are going to ask you a question. They're going to say, how much money am I going to be able to sell the house for? And in reality, they're not asking you. you they may tell you and swear that that's what they want, but what they're really interested in is how much money am I going to be able to walk away from this transaction with in my pocket that I can use to buy another house, a car, or something. And that's where you're going to have to start calculating. You know, what's the sales price, the commission, the escrow fees, the title fees, the monthly mortgage payments, sitting down with a client and explaining the different types of mortgages that are available, uh, what the advantages and disadvantages are, at least making them aware of the advantages and disadvantages of them. So it's very, very, very important that you understand that. So we'll spend time going over that. That's also an area in this class that I see people to go and their scores are just right up there. And then all of a sudden they don't pay attention to the last lecture and do it and their score goes like this. Because what it is is that you can calculate and you can get answers. But they may not be the right answer. And if you've ever done math problems, they actually will put things in there that, you know, you, you can do it. And if you don't do it right, you know, they know how people typically will do them. They'll have the answer for the, for the wrong way to approach it. So we'll cover what that is. Okay, so we're getting pretty close to the end now. We have, I think, maybe another uh, minute and a half or so to go. Bob will let me know here in a minute. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we talked about the course orientation today. If For those of you that if you happen to be here that because of work or something, you weren't able to make it, just stay after class. I'll go through a little brief orientation, make sure that you get the course outline, make sure we cover everything, that you know what's basically going on. Remember that one of the critical things is, is that, uh, and I mentioned in the orientation, that you're going to want to make sure your email address is up to date in Blackboard because we're going to be emailing you, letting you know when we post shows. You know, so you should be hearing something from me in the, probably the next sometime this week to say something like, hey, show one is ready for you to view on the Internet or something. You, know, you should start hearing and seeing. If you're not getting email, you should say, wait a minute, there's something going on here. I haven't updated my email address. Why am I not getting them, okay? And uh, so that's really, really important that you do that. Um, I really can't think of anything else at this point in time. Um, I think you probably want to make sure that you get over to the bookstore, you know, and I think I think the bookstore calls it seven, but you want to make sure you get the books, you know, get all that stuff squared away, make sure you get the Scantron 882s. Uh, I really encourage you, if you can come in and sit during the lecture, it helps. I really do like to have some form of an audience. Uh, that's why we teach. We are performers, believe it or not. If I, the only reason why I teach is because I don't have a voice that can't sing. If I could sing, I would be giving this thing up and, you know, going from there. And uh, I think pretty much that's it. And uh, I will see you back here the next time. And if you want to come up here, I'll uh, start going over any questions you may have. So come on up.